everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Sue the Spooky. Oh, no. Happy Halloween. Happy October. Happy spooky season. Yay. It's finally here. We are recording this during the Canadian Thanksgiving weekend, which is to say, what, the second weekend of October? Yeah. And as my phone has been reminding me all weekend, we are usually in Salem this weekend. Yeah. My phone has been like, remember this three years ago? Remember this five years ago? And we're not. And we're not. Um, Salem Horror isn't happening in its proper form right now. I Mm -hmm. think Kay is running um, some uh, film content out of Cinema Salem. So all I can say for right now is just stay tuned for uh, Salem Horror announcements Mm -hmm. from them. And uh, they're going to be back in the spring. So who knows? Maybe another holiday. Sure. Maybe one that doesn't focus so much around eating, you know, because I like the eating holidays. Yeah. It's nice to be at home in your comfy pants. Oh, yes. Elastic waistband. Anyway. (laughs) We are not here today to talk about eating. We are here to talk about a lack in the post-apocalyptic landscape that is um, perhaps very eerily prescient within this film. And today we are talking about Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a film we've talked about doing for a long time and we've kind of held off on because this always felt like, Andrea, this was kind of like a big film for you. Obviously, you wrote a book about the sociology of zombies and really focused on the Romero trilogy. And well, not trilogy if there's six films, but the original that then kind of spun off into the other of the deads. Yeah. And uh, but then there was also a section, as I remember, in your book about 28 Days Later. Yeah, there was as I was wrapping up. Up, my analysis was basically about Romero's, I say trilogy, to right. refer to those original three movies. Those are the they ones do people... have a cohesion yeah. and like, anyway, whatever, purists can come right at me. But uh, but yeah, at the time that I wrote it, it was in uh, 2010 or 11. And so 28 Days Later had come out, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead had come out, and the zombie renaissance was happening, which was... Think, or, can we say, the zombie renaissance. Whoa, that's clever. Um, yeah, and so every time I was doing a, a conference or something and talking about my research, I'd be asked about these movies, and I'm like, well, they don't really fit the context of my main argument. So yeah, I just tacked on a, a chapter at the end to talk about fast versus slow and and where the zombie apocalypse mania in pop culture might go. Little did I know then that it has since exploded. It's even bigger than it was then, but I think 28 Days Later and Dawn of the Dead, they're often mentioned in the same breath as the emergence of the fast zombie, but 28 Days Later is vastly superior film. It is the one that furthers the zombie conversation, that furthers the satire and the consumer critique, and it is just better in every respect. I hadn't seen this movie in a few years because it was one of those films I got on DVD when it came out, and so I watched it like probably maybe almost too much, and then coming back to it, I was like, I forgot how good this movie is. I forgot how good it is. And I saw it differently Mm, due to the years. I saw it differently due to the context. I I enjoyed it very, very much, but I think I got a lot more out of it. I think so, too. And I remember I saw this one in theaters. It was released in the UK in 2002, but was released um, over here in North America in 2003. And I remember seeing it in a packed theater in downtown Toronto. And people were really responding to it. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of starting to embrace my love of horror that had always been there and I was like I think I'm just a horror fan and 
I was like, there's something happening with this audience. Yeah. Like the amount of response people had yeah. and the amount of enjoyment people were getting out of it. It was so refreshing while taking uh, a monster that had been part of our you know, cultural identity for decades mm-hmm. and just refreshing it and telling a new story with it. Mm-hmm. And I think you can really trace the zombie renaissance uh, and the renaissance to this film mm-hmm. and the impact that it had. And then everyone kind of wanting to say, no, there is still more life in these corpses. Let's, uh-huh. let's shake them around a little bit. Yeah. This movie is a roller coaster ride. It has so many emotional beats. It has humor. It has pathos. It has catharsis. It has all of that and a lot of theory and themes mm-hmm. running in the background. So we've got a lot to sink our teeth into, I dare say. Well, before we take too big of a bite, let's set the table. So this is Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later from 2002. <laughs> activists unwittingly unleashed the rage virus from a Cambridge laboratory, the film cuts to text on screen that says, 28 days later, we see Jim wake up naked, alone, disoriented in a London hospital. He wanders around the city looking for anyone who might tell him what has happened. He soon encounters the infected, who operate viscerally and violently, spreading the contagion through bites and fluid. Selena and Mark come to his rescue and fill him in on the overall collapse of society that has occurred in the last few weeks. The infected attack and Mark is wounded. Suspecting him to be infected, Selena kills him. Soon, Selena and Jim find shelter with Frank and his teenage daughter, Hannah. 
Frank shares with them a military broadcast that promises safety and answers to infection close to Manchester. The four road trip up north and their bonds deepen as they travel. When they arrive from the coordinates of the broadcast, the area is seemingly abandoned. In a freak accident, Frank gets infected blood in his eye, and as he begins to turn, Jim prepares to kill him. At that point, soldiers emerge, killing Frank. They take Jim, Selena, and Hannah to their compound. Their operation is more bare bones than expected, and the soldiers are hostile and immature. Their leader, Major West, tells Jim that their answer to infection is to start again, and the only way to start again is with women. Realizing what this means, Jim goes on the attack, unleashing an infected soldier within the compound and killing them all systematically to free Selena and Hannah from the dark fate planned for them. The film ends with a coda of Jim, Selena, and Hannah flagging down an airplane, implying that the virus has not spread off the island and that help is on the way. Yeah. It's a great film, and in many ways, I feel like it almost uh, it almost smashes Romero's trilogy together. So going back to comparing 28 Days Later with the original Romero reimagining of this zombie, and like Romero's zombies were a reimagining. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before when we talked about that trilogy, was that the original Haitian voodoo zombie was somebody who was robbed of their soul and robbed of their agency and was just kind of operating as an empty husk of a human, which was terrifying for people. But it was Romero. Romero, who decided to inject themes of cannibalism, consumerism, being the living dead that dead bodies would get back up after. And I had argued in my master's thesis that that was reflecting preoccupations that were afflicting society at the time, those being predominantly racism, cannibalism, and infection. And those preoccupations directly informed what Romero's zombies were and how they behaved. And then 28 Days Later comes out, and it almost like it takes the racism and social cultural satire of Night of the Living Dead, the consumerism of Dawn of the Dead, and the critique of military institutions from Day of the Dead, and just smashes them together into a narrative that is so watchable. You never feel that you're being lectured at, but you're horrified on so many levels by the things that are transpiring. And I feel like another great accomplishment of this film is these characters, how much you care about them. And I really can't overstate how Romero's legacy and indeed the real point he wanted to make with this film, like we tend to take it into a dark place with, you know, people are the real monsters and this and that. He didn't want us to completely monstrosize and other the zombies. The zombies were us. We were supposed to have hesitations and feelings about having to blow our neighbor's head off because they were once our friends and he wanted us to feel that and indeed later in his life he went on record as critiquing all of the video games that would just have you mowing down zombies on mass like i don't have a direct quote from him about uh, world war z but i can only imagine i feel like 28 days later carries on that legacy in that it's in the plight of the survivors and what it means for humanity to survive when the only certainty of our existence that we'll die and stay dead is off the table. That's supposed to be the horror. That's supposed to be the satire that our loved ones turn into monsters. And instead of burying them and mourning them, we have to shoot them in the face. I think that kind of confrontation with death and these extreme situations that these characters are in are kind of like a reoccurring theme within Boyle's work. I'm a really big Danny Boyle fan. And this film was also the first time I'd ever encountered Alex Garland, who wrote the screenplay. I didn't realize it was Alex Garland until the rewatch. And I was like, oh, 
yeah. And he, uh, so obviously Alex Garland has gone on to make his own films, like incredibly lauded films like Ex Machina, Annihilation, and the newer, more divisive film Men, which Andrea and I quite enjoyed. Uh Um, We've got a whole thing on our Patreon about that. And also just to plug our Patreon, um, if you would like to read Andrea's entire book, it's on Patreon. Oh, shit. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, for two bucks. Don't read it. I don't like it. I like it. Listen to this episode instead. Okay. This episode will be better. But if you want, it's on there too. Thank you. But I think Danny Boyle has a really distinctive style, but he moves between genres Mm -hmm. in his filmography. Like, he obviously had a massive hit in the mid-90s with Train Spotting. In my late teens, early 20s, I became a really big fan of his film previous to that, which was his first film called Shallow Grave which was his first collaboration with Ewan McGregor and also featured uh, Christopher Eccleston, who plays Major West in this film. Ah. It's a really like dark, twisted noir that also has some very strange comedic elements. It's really interesting. Um, And then, of course, we've also talked about Sunshine on this podcast, his kind of like not fully realized but still really interesting sci-fi horror epic. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is an Academy Award winner with his film Slumdog Millionaire. And I actually am also a big fan of his film A Life Less Ordinary. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's sweet. It's weird, but I like it a lot. Uh, He, of course, made The Beach, which I think you're a big fan of. I am, actually. And he made actually what I thought was a very strong sequel to Train Spotting with Train Spotting 2. I still haven't seen that one. I thought it was really good. Uh, he also did that movie yesterday. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. I wasn't uh, especially interested in the premise and I still don't love it. There are things I don't love about it, but he's just he's such a good filmmaker. He knows how to tell a story and just bring us up and bring us down. And and he really creates very vivid characters yes. um, that I think are so well realized. Other elements of his filmmaking that you'll find fast-paced editing. Yes. Characters in extreme circumstances, and what I think is really important, his use of music. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we all remember in the mid-90s that Train Spotting soundtrack was everywhere yeah. for good reason, because uh-huh. it was a fucking banger after banger. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, incredible music cuts in all of his films that don't even necessarily center around music. Even in 28 Days Later, one of my favorite sequences in the film, because I think it's so smart and it alleviates some of the doom and gloom that we're experiencing in the film, which is when they go grocery shopping yes. and the granddaddy song comes on. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's such a perfect needle drop yeah, yeah. in the middle of this film. And tonally, it shouldn't work, but it does for me. Yeah, it does for me too. I agree with that. I loved the soundtrack to the beach as well. I think uh, I think he has a really good grasp of mood and he's painting a picture and he painted a beautiful one here. And I think just speaking about the beach briefly, um, so the role of Jim was actually intended for Ewan McGregor. Oh. But Danny Boyle and Ewan McGregor had a big falling out over the beach. They did. That was supposed to be Ewan McGregor in the lead role, uh-huh. but it went to Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh-huh. As I mentioned, they had a falling out over it. They've since gotten over it. Uh-huh. They made Train Spotting 2 together. So the role of Jim went to the then unknown Killian Murphy. Thank fuck. And we're going to talk more about Killian Murphy in this episode, but I just thought that was so interesting because in Shallow Grave, McGregor was an unknown and then he kind of blew up internationally with him playing Renton and train spotting. Mm-hmm. So I think Danny Boyle also has a knack for finding actors who are just incredibly talented mm-hmm. and they go from strength to strength to strength. And I think Killian Murphy is so perfect in this role. I can't imagine anyone else doing it. No. And he's this huge lauded actor now as he deserves to be 
in my opinion. And I think this role is interesting because he was so young when he did it. Yeah. And I think still green enough that the kind of awkwardness of him on camera, but his kind of raw talent still comes through. Mm-hmm. And I, I he just feels so real mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah, I think it actually works for the film that Killian Murphy was an unknown at the time uh, and not recognized because we were able to really buy into his naivete, his greenness, his he doesn't know what's going on. We don't know who is that. Let's get to know this guy. Yeah. And it would be so distracting, I think, to see someone who was, you know, a known celebrity entity I think play so this too. role. Um, another thing that adds to the rawness of this film is the fact that it was one of the first major films shot on digital. So it has this weird kind of grainy quality having been shot on digital camera. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. You know, it was in some ways an artistic choice from Boyle. It creates this, it creates this almost amateur quality to uh-huh. some of the shots in some ways. It's very Tay. Yeah. yeah. And it feels different to any film that was shot on physical film. Mm-hmm. That lends itself to that kind of quality of almost a found footage film in some almost, ways. Yeah. And then also from a practical standpoint, it allowed Boyle to shoot a lot more mm-hmm. because he was and having to grapple with, you know, getting the film and getting camera setups and all of that, he could shoot a lot differently with digital. So that's why some of the shots feel quite different. And he was able with a smaller budget to pick up a lot more. Interesting. So one of the things that surprised me on the rewatch was how this film started. I couldn't actually remember and I think this is going to be the case with a lot of people. It's like, oh, 28 Days Later. I remember that being a really good, scary, fast zombie film. Um, but what caused this rage virus and what unleashed it is really interesting. And I couldn't believe that I forgot. So just to remind you guys, I, you mentioned it in your in your synopsis, but it starts with animal activists breaking in to, to release several primates that are being tested upon. And the first sequence we see is a primate who is strapped down and being forced to watch news footage of violence. And it's seemingly kind of political violence, scenes of war, scenes of riots, scenes of military doing what military do in this kind of like clockwork orange-esque montage type thing. And then, you know, they get into the cages and the animals are acting a certain way. And then a scientist comes in and all we really get to know about what experimentation was being done um, to induce this rage virus is in order to cure, you must understand. That is all that we really get of substance from that scientist. And so from there, we're left to assume, okay, like there's a bit of a disconnect because the visual stimulus, the clockwork orangey thing would imply that they're testing to the effects of seeing violent material on people, which I always love when horror movies do that because that always has kind of like that mirror effect of, hey, weirdo, you're watching a horror movie. Are you going to turn into a psycho? And we're always defending against those attitudes, right? But more likely, they're testing whether aggression is innate or learned and comparing data between the primates who witness violence and those who are biologically induced to it. That's the most sense I can make of it. And um, I'm using the word primates because I can't tell the difference between a monkey and ape and a chimpanzee, and I don't want to get it wrong. That's fair. I would just call them all babies. Babies. Okay, you know the babies. They were testing on babies. Anyway, what my ends up happening like this is just like that happens the rage virus is out and blah da 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 then it's a zombie movie 
But it never really stops being about that experiment because Jim and Selena become the real test subjects of that experiment, in my view. They each have their own narrative arcs that take them into opposite ends of that spectrum, and they wind up on opposite ends of that experiment. We've got Selena, who was initially hardened into a very concrete idea of survival. Mm -hmm. You know, we see her kill Mark in a heartbeat when he's infected. We don't know how long they got together or how well they were getting along. And she tells Jim she'll do that to him. And she's initially reluctant to join up with Frank and Hannah because they might slow them down. But her revelation is that there's more to survival than staying alive and people matter. And then she does hesitate to kill Jim, even though he appeared to be a homicidal maniac when he rescued her. And also very fucking sexy. And then there's Jim, who is thrust into this new post-apocalyptic reality more abruptly than most. And it's a while before he's confident about killing the infected. But by the end, he realizes that there are worse things than surviving, like living under sexual slavery under a tyrannical leader, for example. And yeah, we're rooting for him, for killing the bad guys, but there's this brutality to him that also shocked me upon the rewatch. You know, like there's the catharsis and he's the good guy and we like him and we're rooting for him, but it's also kind of like, dude, you okay? I definitely picked up on that. And what I was thinking about in those terms is the necessity of rage in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Mm -hmm. I think in any post-apocalyptic film or scenario, there's going to be someone who is hardened by it and they are like, I'm going to do whatever. And often it's their journey to Mm -hmm. some kind of humanity again. And I think we see this kind of transference of this anger and this rage and the fortitude from Selena who starts off with that hardness. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of started to ping for me as she started to bond with Hannah as they drive up north, you know, and she started to connect with Frank and Hannah and Jim and they became more of a unit that she was beginning to to, uh, relax a bit more and share her drugs, which that's the person I want to travel oh, with. No kidding. Um, I can't believe she shared those. Oh. I would have been like, I counted sheep, motherfuckers, go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And then around that time when they're traveling up north, I really kind of pinned it to Jim going off on his own at the gas station Mm -hmm. and killing the child. Mm -hmm. And then not even telling them about it. Not a word. So there's an element of shame, but then later he confesses it to the major. I thought that was really cool. I think it's interesting that transference and how that transference needed to happen in order for both characters to progress. In any kind of traditional narrative, you want to see your heroes progress. So when we meet Selena, she's hard. And then she kind of, I guess, softens is probably the easiest word to use in this. And then Jim, who is like a babe in the woods, mm-hmm. fucking picks up all the weapons and murders a bunch of men. Mm-hmm. But here's where it gets interesting is whereas most horror movies that kind of have a message, that kind of have a thrust, that have a vibe, and you've got two characters who go from one end of the spectrum to the other, the one that survives is kind of, okay, so the film is saying you need to be hard to survive or the film is saying you need to be human to survive or the film is complicating notions of survival or this and that you know like that's usually the barometer upon which i determine where a film lands on a certain subject so there were alternate endings to the film that we saw there was a radical alternate ending that was not filmed the original true ending that was 
partially filmed. And then I guess the third is just kind of an offshoot of that. I will explain. But the radical alt ending that was not filmed appears on the DVD as a series of illustrated storyboards. And in that one, the group is able to restrain the infected Frank and bring him to a medical compound where Jim sacrifices himself for Frank's life by a full blood transfusion that cures him. And they scrapped it because they decided that the blood transfusion as a cure logic didn't really make sense, seeing as a single drop of blood spreads the infection, so that was scrapped. But the original true ending, Jim dies from the gunshot in a deserted hospital, which takes him full circle to the start where he woke up from his coma. And the attention was to imply that Hannah and Selena go on to survive without him. But they tested this ending with audiences, and audiences were like, the girls are doomed. The girls will never make it without Jim. He rescued them, and now that he's dead, the girls are doomed. And I thought that was so upsetting and tragic and annoying because yes, insofar as they are rescued because circumstances put them in a position where they needed to be rescued, these are such competent women. And the fact that test audiences were like, they'll never make it without Jim. I was like, fuck that. Fuck that. I like Jim, but I still want this ending. And then that third semi-shot ending that I was talking about, like they actually filmed a rescue coda that appears in the film except without Jim. And it implies his death in that he's not at the farm, but uh, Hannah and Selena are still able to wave down the jet. So there, there was like a hopeful ending without Jim. I think it's interesting because when I think of the um, alternate ending with Jim dying in the hospital and Hannah and Selena heading out to the uncertain future... Mm-hmm. The film has told us, to a certain degree, that Selena's kind of softening mm-hmm. and her lack of hardness mm-hmm. led her to accept that their rape was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways the film was saying that if Jim dies, they would not be able to continue on without him. Mm-hmm. So in some way, like I see what you're saying and I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think the film itself is telling us as an audience Selena accepted this fate to a certain degree. She was drugging Hannah up so she didn't have to feel anything like which, hey, that makes sense mm-hmm. in that I'm not saying I would do anything different. But I think the film was saying that, you know, Jim had to play this role. And if it was just those two again, you were not shown that Selena's hardness would come back in the same way. Yeah. On Selena's side, all of that makes sense. On Jim's side, to see this blue-eyed, blinking ingenue go from heart, like he went so hard over that edge for that to have destroyed him, almost follows a bit more of a traditional narrative fatal flaw of the hero. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which, you know, I'm I'm not saying that I like, you know, very conventional films and stuff like that, but I, I just... I almost wonder if that would make it easier to really parse out what 28 Days Later is saying about rage and aggression and violence and towing that line between humanity and aggression and violence. And, you know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's better that it's complicated and it's a longer conversation for us. I also think it's important to note that uh, Jim and Killian Murphy, he's Irish. And I think it's important to contextualize a little bit of what being Irish means in a film set in England. So as we think about the UK, Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Only Northern Ireland. The rest of Ireland is the Republic of Ireland, and they are separate. They are their own country, but of course they share a landmass and an island off of 
you know, the main chunk of the UK, which mm-hmm. is Scotland, England, and Wales. Um, I also conceive of continents as chunks of land. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a geographer. Andrea's <laughs> just smiling at me now. <laughs> Neither of us are. So no. here, here we go. We need to talk more about the topography of horror. Uh, so Killian Murphy himself is from Cork, Ireland, which is part of the Republic of Ireland. Now, as Ben in Night of the Living Dead to talk about Romero's original trilogy, uh, played by Dwayne Jones. He was hired, as Romero has said, as we've talked about on the podcast, simply because he was the best actor to audition for that part. And he is incredible as Ben. Mm -hmm. Couldn't picture anyone else as Ben. But having a black man at the center of that film in the midst of the civil rights uprising in America changes the tone quite a bit. And so having someone from the Republic of Ireland lead a film that is happening in the UK is quite interesting and leads to a lot of discussions of the politics and the dynamics at play between those two countries. Just from Jim's... Can I just ask a really ignorant question beforehand? I'm really bad with accents. Mm-hmm. So British audiences watching 28 Days Later when it came out were like, he's Irish. Yes. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yes. Okay. They would have understood it. Maybe they wouldn't have totally been be able to delineate yes. north from south. But just overall in Ireland, there is a tension with England. No, I get that part. It's just like that went completely over my head. And so just if you're listening to this and you're like, I didn't detect a difference in the accent, I'm with you guys. Okay. And this is just because... I've spent time in England. My father's British. I've studied Irish literature a bit in my university degree. Uh, It's very depressing. A lot about famine and death and the way they were subjugated, uh, which is really fucked up. And you understand why when the queen died, they were pretty fucking happy. In any event, talking about the alt endings, it just I literally have it in my notes as happy versus sad. Um, so I think the ending where Jim dies, I think, is kind of parallel to the Irish sacrifice. The people who died fighting for Irish independence, who still um, put themselves in harm's way. And, you know, there was the IRA, there were bombings, there was a lot of, you know, incredibly dark years, which are called the Troubles really sad and really scary time. And I think that kind of death would really feed into that kind of narrative, which is not necessarily what they set out to. You know, I don't think they knew they were going to cast an Irishman to play this part, but that's again what it leads to. Whereas I think the ending with him surviving and creating a new, you know, kind of heteronormative family, if we mm-hmm. look at it like that, with him and Selena kind of together and Hannah as being, you know, um, their kind of surrogate daughter in some ways, as a look towards survival and that there is a possible understanding of a future in which globalization is not the devil. Mm-hmm. So that would have been subversive and controversial, the fact that he would have entered into kind of a nuclear family unit. And... For like a certain generation of people? Yeah. Probably. Okay. Um, and I think for a lot of, you know, younger modern people in the UK, it's like, no, we shouldn't subjugate people. Right. Whereas <laughs> if he had have died, it would have been like, oh, another dead Irishman at the hands of I think like, it could Saban. be read like that. And if, that's, if that had been the ending, I would have had an entire reading about that. Okay. Huh. That's really interesting. So let's rewind a little bit to when we first meet Jim Mm -hmm. and his opening sequence, which I think is some of the most iconic images from this film. Mm -hmm. And it's him waking up 
naked. Full frontal naked. Another thing I didn't remember I, for the first time. If I had been wearing pearls in the theater when I watched this, <laughs> I would have clutched them. Simply because I'm just not used to seeing that kind of... No! It's a bold choice. And, and so casually. Yeah. And I think it just, you know, kind of endears us to Jim as a very vulnerable. Very innocent, vulnerable. It's like figure. he's being reborn into this exactly. new world. And I think this opening sequence is such a perfect example of show don't tell. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while this film didn't have a huge budget, it did have the prestige of being a Danny Boyle film. And he had the experience to uh, get parts of London empty. So they could shoot these sequences. Yes. I think that was like, you know how Rumorg has that weird stats and morbid facts? Mm-hmm. Apparently they had 12 minutes yeah. at the crack of dawn. Yeah. And they were like, all right, we'll let you do it, but you better be quick. And it's a one shot take and that's it. And that was also part of the strength of being able to have everything on digital film. They could mm-hmm. shoot this stuff really quickly. quickly. But I think what resonated with me watching it this time is how... This sequence illustrates how Jim and society and the audience is moving from science to society to religion, um, all kind of having fallen apart through his experience of wandering through this empty, desolate London. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the very beginning, we've got Jim in the hospital. So that's, I think, emblematic of science. There is no one around him. There are no doctors. There's not even an infected person around him. It's abandoned. Abandoned. And all he can do is kind of grab the elements from the vending machines, Mm the uh, sugary uh, soda drinks and the kind of, you know, chips and candy that is left there. From there, he moves to the city proper. So we are looking at a bastion in London of culture of entrepreneurship. It was an empire Mm -hmm. um, for centuries. I noticed it was like all statues and like those giant buildings that are always bustling in Toronto anyway. Exactly. And now it is terrifyingly empty. Mm -hmm. The lack of people is what's scary about it. And then when we get towards the end of this sequence, as he moves to the church, and I think we can read that very clearly as religion, it is not empty. It is full of bodies. Yeah. And those bodies are contaminated. Yeah. And in the final moments of the sequence where it ends, where Jim gets to meet um, Mark and Selena, it's at a gas station, which represents oil, energy, value, and it is destroyed. It, to me, I think reads as all of these things we have valued, science, culture, community, economics, and value are destroyed. They don't matter anymore. What matters is finding other people who are not infected. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of goes to what I'm feeling like is the thesis of this film, for me anyway, is that humanity is the commodity that is left and that is the most valuable thing. And I think we can look at humanity as it is the biological commodity that, you know, the soldiers are maybe after. And then it's also the actual interpersonal connections that really matter to our heroes in the end, mm-hmm. making those connections and keeping them safe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point because I, I think early on, it seems like Selena and Mark don't have a plan. No. 
because like, they, they talk about this and Selena's like, the plan is to survive. And yet, you know, they take on this rescue mission and like there's a lot left to our imaginations in terms of what were they doing? Are they looking for survivors or did they happen upon Jim and decide to take him in? Like, we're not really sure. And uh, Selena's big thing is survival, survival, survival until she learns that there's more to life than survival. And then the kinship bonds are the one institution that are worth clinging to and the one that might endure. Although, you know, the institutional bond of the family has its roles. And we see that again with the military later. But yeah, and I feel like that even kind of factors into the whole fast zombies versus slow zombies argument. And I think that distinction is so important because the first encounter we have with the infected and they move fast is with the priest. Mm -hmm. And that is so jarring. Like I remember in that theater, like when I first saw it, the audience kind of go, whoa, because not only is it a fast-moving zombie, which we were not necessarily anticipating, it was a priest. It was a priest. And when Jim hits him, he's like, I should not have done that. I should not. This was wrong. And like, you know, he defended himself, but it's also kind of like, did I just fucking hit a priest? Yeah. If you had have asked me at the end of my thesis, and I think I even say this at the end of my thesis, like the, the, the broad strokes argument about fast versus slow zombies is that society moves so fast now. Everything moves so fast now. So it makes sense that the threat would move through the world more quickly thanks to globalization, thanks to mass media, thanks to all these things, and we would respond to it in kind. And, you know, that's kind of a really empty broad strokes thing, but that's what I would have told you 10 years ago. This update of fast zombies, like it reflects how quickly danger appears in the modern context of outbreaks, terrorism. This film came out before 9-11 or was it after? After it came out in 2002. So we talked in the last episode on Final Destination about risk society and about how in the modern context we're all hyper aware of major risk factors in our everyday lives, like the specter of global annihilation through war, the environment, etc. It's, it's, it's all around us. And 28 Days Later is an interesting look at this in that Jim's narrative starts a month into an apocalypse that starts before public discourse can even register it. And we don't see that happen because we don't need to. All we need to hear is Selena be like, hey, it was on the news and then it was in our front door. That's it. That's all the buildup anyone got. And so Jim being thrust right into it just like puts us right there. Now, I found an excellent article called Fast Zombie, Slow Zombie, Food Writing, Horror Movies, and Agribusiness Apocalypse by Michael Newbery. And uh, I will link it in the show notes because it, it makes a really interesting point about how 28 Days Later throws some important updates to the themes of consumerism that we find in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, for example, like the scene that you were just describing about Jim pounding a can of pop, looting a vending machine with all like really... And then when he's also just collecting paper money on the street. Yeah, yeah. It, like it's, it's just our impulse yeah, to like... To this, hoard. To hoard and to take it with us because we don't know what's going on. And these there's, there's comfort in these recognizable brands and in this existing currency. And then when he requests a, a specific brand name soft drink... Yeah. <laughs> Selena offers him one. Like the streets are littered with wrappers, soda cans, and trash. Consumerism is dead. This is a new zombie era. And further, I feel like the film really makes a point of the fact that the readily available food is shit. Like what they're surviving on is full of sugar and it's making them feel like garbage. What's up? Nothing. <sighs> Got a headache. Bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, why didn't you say something before? Well, because I didn't think you'd give a shit. 
got no fat on you, and all you've had to eat is sugar. So you're crashing. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot we can do about that. So put me for the painkillers and give you more sugar. You're crashing from sugar because that's all we're subsisting on, and that is all the unperishable food that we have available to us. And then Frank uh, observes that the apples that haven't gone bad at the grocery market, mmm, irradiated. That their shopping scene is so reminiscent of Dawn of the Dead's mall spree, except instead of furs, they're just like food. We and, need bare essentials. And good alcohol. Mm -hmm. And good fucking alcohol. So the original slow-moving zombies, they have a slow appetite, just like any living organism. They need to eat to live. But the rapid bloodlust of the infected is something else. It's something unnatural. It's imposed on humanity. That's another big departure from Romero zombies. It's like, is this a comet? Is this uh, like some kind of religious retribution thing? No. This is entirely man-made. And made within the borders of this country. That's right. That's right. It's right here. And so, like, there's an allegory to be made between, like, fast food and the immediate gratification that's promised by online modern consumers. So to put it another way, these new fast zombies aren't eating their prey so much as consuming them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like these aren't cannibalistic zombies. They are just devouring in a much broader sense. It's not about sustenance and it's not about me versus you. It's about no one. And I think it's really telling that nobody ever in the film, even in the hopeful coda at the very end, floats the idea of returning to a pastoral, pre-industrialized way of sustenance because we're so divorced from it. Nobody's ever like, well, we need to plant a garden. Well, it's not entirely true. No? Major West does talk about that. So all of this discussion, which I think is absolutely bang on, and I thought all of the inclusion of the brand names of, you know, the various sodas and, you know, little things you get from a vending machine were so omnipresent, even down to when uh, Frank is talking about what the alcohol is and how to get it. And this one is more smoky. Like, yeah, yeah. there is, the, as you were just saying, like this reliance on kind of brand recognition within this world. And Consumer I think Consumer awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Like, when you're, I, I can only imagine waking up in a hellscape and being like, oh my God, there's that Dove body wash I like. Yeah. That must feel to some degree comforting. Very comforting. Um, but it led me to think a lot about the economy in a post-apocalyptic future. And I came across this article and we'll link it in the show notes and it's called Varieties of Zombieism Approaching Comparative Political Economy Through 28 Days Later and Wild Zero by Derek Hall. Wild Zero. Amazing. I love that film. I haven't seen it. This article made me want to watch it. I'm going to really breeze through what this article talks about, but I highly recommend it if you're interested in this. It's a really fascinating read. So Hall essentially sees the rage virus as capitalism, as it is highly contagious and it spreads and it transforms existing societal conditions. Now, this is a direct quote from Hall because I was kind of like puzzling over how does the military act in this film function. And it was really bugging me. And then I think Hall really nailed it to a certain degree. So he writes, the role of the base in the film, in fact, bears a striking resemblance to the history of the Soviet Union and capitalism. Hannah, Selena, and Jim have found themselves in the same position that so many millions found themselves through the 20th century, having followed the stirring calls to action that spoke of salvation and the answer to zombieism slash capitalism, what they have discovered instead is an impressive militaristic society engaged in an armed standoff with capitalism and hoping that capitalism will collapse of its own accord. I think that's a really interesting way to look at the 
military movement. And, you know, as I've mentioned, my dad is British. I have a lot of British family and I've spent some time there. And so I've been, of course, following the news for the last few years out of England. And in the last few months, it seems to be getting more and more dire. I try to read The Guardian online a few times a week and I can barely make it through an article because it is so fucking depressing. But there was something that is said within the film and it is from Major West. And it's when he introduces Jim to the infected soldier. Keeping him alive. The idea was to learn something about infection. Have him teach me. And has he? In a way. He's telling me he'll never bake bread, plant crops, raise livestock. He's telling me he's futureless. And eventually, he'll tell me how long the infected take to starve to death. And it just led me to think about Brexit. Uh, and um, I'm going to do a real quick run through of what Brexit is. And there are so many nuances to this discussion. There are documentaries, endless articles, podcast series about it. Like it's, I'm again, I'm scratching the surface here, if scratching at all. So I, I think it's important to talk about the year 2016. Before Donald Trump was elected, the UK voted to leave the European Union. And this was because while the UK saw the benefits of free trade within the European Union, they seem to really hate immigrants coming into their country. What? So we got a nice, you know, strong racist element here. Um, and a lot of this vote was voted on by older voters outside of city centers. And these votes were largely informed by not only underlying racism within the UK, but also a lot of horrifying misinformation campaigns. And so I looked up these stats. So in the end, 17.4 million people voted in favor of leaving the European Union. 16.1 million voted to remain. The population of the UK in 2016 was 65.6 million. So that means half the people voted. Mm -hmm. That's a tight vote anyway. Mm -hmm. And then half of the people didn't vote. It is important to note that Scotland, in large part, voted to remain. So now this has kind of kicked off a, I think, a very healthy discussion of Scottish independence. So Brexit took about four years. It has only come into effect in the last couple of years and went through a few prime ministers in its course and some of the consequences of Brexit, which saw basically their borders close to immigration and some trade elements. Mm -hmm. um, it has resulted in a stagnating economy. Restraints on immigration are actually hurting the UK's labor force. Who would have thunk it? Um, many businesses actually left the UK after the vote because they realized they could not do business in an island that was intent on being a literal island yeah. in the global economy. 
And it has basically thrust the UK into a space where they can only kind of fight with themselves Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And it's in some ways very complicated. In some ways, it's not because it was just this short-sightedness that has led them to a place where obviously, you know, the pandemic didn't help. The Russia's war against Ukraine is not helping. And they're looking at rolling blackouts of power through this winter. Like it's bad. It's really bad. And I just hope for any of our UK listeners, you are okay. And I think that as we look at this film as a kind of rage virus that has internalized within this homegrown ethos of we need to preserve an idea of like make England great again or make the UK great again, Mm -hmm. it is serving to only cannibalize themselves. Mm -hmm. And there was also this idea that within the UK, if they Brexited enough, that they would just have more exports. They would kind of feed themselves more. Mm -hmm. And that's not what's happening. So I think Major West's um, idea, you know, about like, he's never going to bake bread. He's not going to do crops. He's not going to do all of this is this idea of this kind of dream of Brexit Mm -hmm. that as they're living, the reality is not coming true. Right. It's not happening. And I think what's also interesting is that, you know, well, The UK is still part of the global economy. It's not the leader it once was. It's obviously still part of the G7, but because they have isolated themselves so much, a lot of the global economy is just kind of watching this experiment, Mm. which kind of feels parallel to what's happening in 28 weeks later, where it's clear that the other world powers have just been like, this little island went fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we are just keeping tabs on it and monitoring it as it happens. Interesting. And to bring it back slightly to um, the discussion of Irishness within this context, one of the big pieces of Brexit that I followed with a bit of interest or quite a bit of interest was what was going to happen between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they share a landmass. Uh, they share people, like people go back and forth. And basically, there had been a discussion of uh, instituting a customs border oh, between the two. Sense. And essentially, they, thank God, didn't yeah. because that would have essentially kind of reignited the troubles all okay. over again. Yeah. Um, so there are still some limitations to movement as I understand it, but a lot of, um, the fears they, they managed to kind of get around, but it's still, it's not, not a healthy environment to be in. And, um, I feel really bad about it. Well, now I do too. Thanks a lot. Oh. Uh, I thought the, uh, the military compound was so, uh, it's so well-written and so beautifully illustrated in that they're talking about rebuilding and we need to look to the future. We need to look to the future. Meanwhile, they are on a site that is in ruins. You know what I mean? It's like they're taking the bones of the past and talking about the future. But what they really want to do is reinstate the patriarchy, reinstate everything that we have the opportunity to do away with, with starting over. Everything bad they're taking as their foundational blocks. Yeah. No, and and I think it's also very telling that, you know, there's this throwaway line where Major West is talking about, uh, you know, all the precautions they're taking on the base. Don't worry. You're quite safe here. Flat terrain all around the house. Floodlights, which we've rigged up to a generator. High perimeter wall, which helps. And we've been lacing the ground with trip wires and landmines. You wouldn't want to mow the lawn, but if they get in, we hear them. You know, we've set up all these landmines, but you wouldn't want to go for a walk out there. 
<laughs> like it lulls, but also you're a fucking prisoner now. That's right. And I also thought it was interesting. I don't know what you make of this about Frank's death because Frank is, I mean, is played by Brenda Gleason, who is one of my favorite actors and just treasure of a human being. I spent a little bit of time with him in a green room at TIFF once. No way. Yeah. And he seems like a truly delightful man. Um, his death. Oh, punch me in the fucking heart. Yeah. But I thought it was so interesting that soldiers only emerge after he's been infected. That's right. And so I have to wonder after this rewatch if the soldiers were waiting because they sussed out that he was basically a real male parental father figure ah. in this. And that he might not have been able to do very much when they were at the base, but he would have fought like fuck to not let anyone touch who he was kind of becoming paternal towards. Right. Maybe. I, I did find it sus. They came for the salvation that was promised. And if the soldiers had appeared sooner, that would have, Frank would have survived. I also thought it was very governmental, the way that the military broadcast from Major West was phrased. We have an answer to infection. Mm -hmm. Not a cure, not anything. Mm -hmm. It's just an answer. It's so, like, governmentally vague yeah. that I was like, you've fucking bastards. I noticed the term salvation too. Yeah. be saved. And it makes sense because when you're desperate and you're scared and even when you, you know, fight against government institutions and I don't believe in many, if any of them these days. If I was in that situation, I'd be like, well, thank God, the military. Well, sure. And I think Selena even says at one point, like soldiers, sweet soldiers, blithely unaware that yeah. she's going to be the object of a rape campaign by a bunch of soldiers in a second. I think that's also kind of it, the ending, even though this is the happy ending, it's still an uncertain ending. It's still a, kind of a military ending. Like, who has access to this fighter jet who's going to rescue them? And yet, you know, I think there's something admirable and noble and it, it, in accordance with Selena's narrative arc that she would maintain hope of being saved and we need to find other people and hello, like notice that they say hello and not SOS or something like that. And it's a very human response. But Well, and also it's so beautiful, the shot where they haven't finished the O yet. So it just says hell. <laughs> I was just like, it's just so like darkly funny. Yes. I, I loved it. I also think the military section of this film is such an important part of how this film deals with masculinity and uh, the notion of family. This film is narratively built on the bodies of a lot of dying men. Mm -hmm. And the family unit, which continues to evolve throughout the film. So the film, as it begins in proper, starts with Jim alone. Then it goes to Jim, Selena, and Mark. Then it goes to Jim, Selena, Frank, and Hannah. Then it goes to Jim, Selena, Hannah, and the Army. Then it ends with Jim, Selena, and Hannah. And I really feel that this film is about, in, in some ways, the replacement of father figures for Jim. And it kind of begins after uh, he meets up with Selena and Mark and he insists on going back to his family home, mm -hmm. which in a scene that it literally makes me cry. Like I wept watching this scene. I also thought it was so beautiful that they humored him. Like even though they were kind of like, this is a really bad idea, but we understand that you are not going to understand until. and accept what's going on until you see it firsthand. So let's fucking go. Yeah. And when he discovers his parents' bodies and they've killed themselves rather than deal with with yeah. what was a very sensible decision on their part. Mm -hmm. And they're holding a photo of Jim as a child and it's this lovely inscription don't ends with up. don't wake up. 
like I cried, I cried like a fucking baby watching it's so that. So beautifully done. You should be grateful. <sighs> I'm not grateful. Like everything is addressed. Everything that someone would ostensibly feeling they is addressed. Think he would. They hoped he would never see it. Like yeah. oh. Oh, my heart. My heart. So good. Now. But basically then throughout the film, Jim moves with replacing male figures from Mark to Frank to Major West. You know, I think it goes to speak how an individual in isolation cannot survive. However, individuals controlled, as the army tries to do, can't be sustained. So what is the happy medium? And I think that's what you see at the end, where it's seemingly um, the three of them at the end, getting to live together and work together. Like they're like, oh, did you, are you sure you heard it? Okay, let's go for it. And they're all out there jumping together mm-hmm. in hope in something. And it just ends on that hopeful note of, I think they saw us this time. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a sigh of relief that you kind of can find this chosen family that will take care of you and that will be a healthy, safe space for you to live in. Yeah. I think there is something poignantly satirical in the search for the nuclear family, even after the like, okay, my parents are dead. I am no longer a son. I am no longer a this and a that. You know, we see Selena easily adopt a maternal thing. Like, I feel like even the way she kind of chides Jim for being like, don't look at that. Don't go out there. Don't, don't, don't do this and late. And like, and then at one point, Jim is like, God, it's like traveling with your aunt. And I think Mark also has kind of like a similar, like, oh, mom. Yeah. Because she takes on that maternal role because she must. And so, you know, she takes on that in an authoritarian context and then she softens up to it. Whereas uh, Jim's narrative arc takes him from being like a helpless baby into like a paternal figure. But like that is the family institution institution is the one that they chose to cling to, not only because it served them, because it gave them meaning to keep going. Yeah. Like that was the turning point for Selena to be like, we can't just survive. Like I want Hannah to have her dad. I want her to be okay. And I think, you know, I'm inclined to be like, I want to critique the family unit. I want to pull apart those patriarchal ideals, Mm -hmm. but I guess such a thing as a non-patriarchal family unit, I guess. But, you know, of all the institutions skewered in this film, that one is actually kind of reified. I think it is. And I think it works for me because of, you know, while we were talking at the beginning of this episode about the brilliance of Killian Murphy, I think we can also talk about the brilliance of Naomi Harris, oh who plays God. Selena. Yes. Like, let's. Ugh, just, I, it was the first time I've seen her. I've seen her in a ton of things since, thank God, because she's a brilliant actress. Uh-huh. And, um, I'm just a big fan. And I'm like, yeah, this is why the two of you became huge stars. That's right. That's right. I did find a great um, article on the importance of neglected intersections, race and gender in contemporary zombie texts and theories by Kenesha D. Brooks that I will link to in the in the show notes. And they were looking at, you know, another big player in the zombie renaissance next to 28 Days Later and Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is The Walking Dead. Oh, which sure. also figures a very strong black female lead in Michonne. And the article talks about how black women are traditionally masculinized, if not outright monstracized in horror. But these characters are afforded a lot more complexity that transcend these stereotypes. And Brooks talks about, you know, like wielding the machete 
for example, that's another commonality with Michonne. It's not only a phallic weapon, but one that's associated with, quote, people of the tropics, people of color, and in Britain, Africans from the nation's colonized diaspora. Brooks also notes that Selena's sexuality, in contrast to the traditionally sexually unavailable final girl, is a lot more multifaceted. Mm -hmm. She may have squashed any idea Jim might have had early on about them hooking up somewhere to fuck, as she puts it. She's also always the one to initiate initiate intimacy between them. And like her blackness isn't completely ignored, but I almost appreciated that the one time it's mentioned, it's in very crude fashion by these soldiers who are excited to rape her and who are already established as pieces of shit and as part of the old guard yes. who are going to see yeah. you as a racialized, sexualized creature and, and not a survivor. Her. That's right. Jim is Jim is the one who gets all the sexualized gaze between the nude at the start and then there was a very nice shower shot of his sweet, sweet bum. Yeah. And to your point um, earlier in the episode when um, Selena almost kills him and she pauses, mm-hmm. oh, be still my heart. I know. I know. It's hot. I almost hate how hot it is. Right? It's like he's being a monster right now. He's just like shirtless, so- streaked in shit, but I need to change my panties. And, uh, <laughs> whoopsie doodle. So in talking about Selena and in talking about the gender policy, I love the way this film approaches the great unspoken conflict of rebuilding society, reproduction, and what that entails. I feel like that is such a murky, murky thing that Major West's future starts with the rape and forced impregnation of women. Business as usual for the future. And it's such a fucking horrifying proposition. And I feel like it's dealt with so beautifully. They never use the R word. They nope. did. I promised them women. And then it's just two white men looking at each other and understanding exactly what that means. And everyone in the audience is understanding exactly what that means. And it's horrible. And I can't think of a whole lot of other examples of zombie movies, post-apocalyptic movies, horror movies that deal with like a concentrated, planned, systematic rape campaign. And it is so fucking scary. The closest I can come to it is maybe, I I remember I felt a keen ickiness when I was watching George Romero's Day of the Dead, because there's a scene where uh, where Sarah, the main protagonist, she's talking to some guys and um, one of them suggests that she flee with them and they'll just find an island somewhere and repopulate the earth. And it rings. It, it like to me that landed with an implication of obligated sex and possible rape. Not to mention a complete disregard for Sarah's bodily autonomy. Not to mention a complete disregard to for whether or not she's able to have children, much less be wanting to bring them up in this context. And I remember how disgusting that made me feel. And yet the scene, which is washed in this really like nice, soothing music. And this is, this is a man who knows what he wants to do. Like, this is the actual future of humanity. Like far be it from me to critique Romero. But I was like, dude, that is fucking terrifying. That is not hopeful or optimistic or warm and fuzzy. It's supposed to be a hopeful scenario, but for whom? It is something that I remember, again, watching in theater subsequent times on DVD and everything. 
I felt this like sinking feeling in my stomach of like that. Oh, that's what you need. Mm-hmm. And it was so horrifying. The f- I remember the first time I saw it, it was a very visceral, like, oh no. And then watching it in prep for this episode, I was like, oh, well, it's just like the American Supreme Court. Absolutely. It's the exact same rhetoric of humanity must continue. Boys will be boys. Like we have so many linguistic shortcuts to get around the word rape when ultimately it boils down to rape. What I think is 28 Days Later's strong point is that it has so many entries to horror. It is terrifying in the way that the infected attack and that their rage is felt throughout the film. Survival horror. Survival horror. It is, you know, the tenuous grasps we have to our humanity, the tenuous grasp that we have to the people who we meet. Apocalyptic horror. And then... This kind of biological horror where it is like my womb could become the most prized possession. Yeah. And that's fucking scary. Yeah. It is scary and it's gross, but it's also like it it, it moved something in me. And it's uh, for, for it to have gone there, A, and B, been handled as... I don't want to say delicately. It wasn't handled delicately. It, it, was, it was crude and pretty overt. And I guess, yeah, it was just frank and honest in a way that was believable. And I could totally see someone believing that and even saying it on the fucking news. It is the sobriety of that conversation mm. between Jim and Major West that you were like, oh, there is no way past this conversation. That's right. This is what's going to happen. And I think that I haven't seen that kind of conversation or this idea explored in horror since. No, even since, exactly. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of feminist films that deal with rape and reproduction and all of that stuff, but this kind of man-to-man conversation about the bodily autonomy of women, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen replicated in this kind of, again, this sobriety Mm -hmm. before. There is this kind of, occasionally I've seen it where it's a bit over the top and it's very like twirl your mustache evil. And I think, again, there's so many great actors in this film, but Christopher Eccleston's plain speak of just like, this is how it is. That's right. And we've got the guns and I've got the men. And he's not saying it, but it's all implied. That's right. And Jim doesn't argue with him. Jim doesn't try to change his view. He's like, we are out. Yeah. We are not safe. And there is going to be no negotiation with all these men with guns. That's what puts him over the edge. And, you know, again, like going back to those alternate endings and whether or not like Jim surviving is a nicer narrative ending. <sighs> I like that his humanity and his his allowance of violence into his humanity and it informs his humanity in certain ways. Was that your sense? Is that toward the end he had lost his humanity completely? I also felt like in this rewatch, his plan of just unleashing Mailer was quite reckless. That could have gone a completely different way. So part of me was like, was this a rescue attempt or was this a revenge attempt that resulted in rescue? I read it as a rescue of a desperate person Mm -hmm. who is like, even if this goes horribly wrong, it's better than than the fate that is planned for them. And I, I think it also speaks, and again, we were talking earlier in this episode about this film kind of training us that Maybe Selena and Hannah are hopeless without Jim. Mm -hmm. I think Selena, and to clarify my thoughts about this, is handling this situation in the way many women would handle it. Mm -hmm. We live under the patriarchy. We live in a rape culture. The majority of us have been sexually assaulted to some degree. And 
there is a understanding that at some point this will happen to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think just to qualify my maybe thoughts about Selena here, she's taking the, you know, I think a very honest way out with Hannah. Just drug her and just be like, yeah, it wasn't giving up. Her. It wasn't cowardly. It was acknowledging of, oh, yes. Okay. So this part of the world is going to continue on. And, and here's how I manage and it. And I can't fight back without dying yeah. and then leaving you utterly alone. That's right. But if I'm still here, maybe I can still protect you like a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Protect some part of you. Some part. Yeah. It's, it's Again, this is why we're still having this conversation about this film is it's layered, it's nuanced by presenting us with very fucking real situations that, you know, the military is not known for being real fucking rational in places mm-hmm. like uh, military rape, sexual assaults happen to this day. Mm-hmm. It's part of their culture in mm-hmm. many ways. Not everyone, but a lot. That's right. And this film, it, it goes there. And it, it, it never in a way that's exploitative or too titillating. And like the fact that that is the climax of we need to get the fuck out of here and unleash some hell. And it's glorious and it's satisfying, if brutal. And then, you know, we get a sort of hopeful ending that I feel like is just hopeful enough to to keep us from, you know, going straight to the pub. and just dark enough to be like yeah that was a fucking real that was a yarn look guys like this film made a huge splash like not only revitalizing the zombie subgenre not only ushering in the fast zombie subgenre often imitated but never duplicated i have to mention this little nugget that came out this was like toward the end of my master's thesis research and i thought it was so fucking weird so in 2011 the center for disease control and prevention aka the cdc mm-hmm. began a campaign for emergency awareness that they called preparedness 101 zombie apocalypse so this is the CDC, and this was an official fucking white paper that went through boardrooms and boardrooms. This is a great idea. And it sounds so ridiculous, but it was basically an effort to assure the public that in the event of something like that happening, anything like that happening, there were plans in place to quarantine the diseased, find a cure, and help those in danger using these popular zombie narratives as examples. Like, you know, you can't tell little kids, you know, shit could go down one day and then you're going to have to have a radio, but you can show them a zombie movie and they'll get the fucking point, right? So that blog post came out in 2011 and it was such a hit that it crashed the CDC website within two days. They usually get between like one to 3,000 hits per week. And that document alone saw 30,000 hits the first day it was up. And the campaign is now retired. Uh, so we can't see it, which is crushing because like, like, there's a Wikipedia article and there's articles talking about it, but that specific document is oh, retired. Yeah. But the CDC had also launched a corresponding document called Preparedness 101 Zombie Pandemic. And I was able to find a download to that on the CDC Stacks website that I'll link in the show notes. And I downloaded it. It's a PDF. And I expected it to be like a white paper of like, here's what to do. Here's what not to do. No, 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 no. It's a fucking comic strip. Oh. It's a mini comic about a couple who starts seeing reports on the news about an outbreak. And it shows how they react to it. And then cutting to a CDC lab where they're working to control things. And it ends on a note that's 
somewhat ambiguous, but mostly optimistic, with a final page reading the following, quote, we hope you enjoyed reading this fictional story. It's meant to be both educational and entertaining. Now that you've seen the importance of being prepared, take the time to put together an emergency kit with the items included in the checklist on the following page. You'll be ready for any kind of disaster even zombies. And the checklist includes stuff like water, flashlight, battery-powered shit, and extra batteries and stuff like that. So, all of this to say is that even the CDC at the time got on board with the zombie outbreak story. Even the CDC was able to recognize how powerful zombie narratives were on popular culture as a powerful allegory for risk society. And yet, there was a pandemic. <laughs> Like, oh my God. None of us, none of, none us, were of us were prepared. We panicked about toilet paper. That's right. I think that's just a delicious note to end this discussion on is that like, you know, this is a film that came out fucking 20 years ago and it just rings truer and truer and truer the further we go. And that is a good fucking film. Such a good fucking film. And I will say, I, I did watch uh, 28 Weeks Later Oh yeah, in prep for this film, and I, I know I alluded to it. It's a very bleak film. It's much bleaker than I remember it. And it features a lot of stars uh, that we have now, like Jeremy Renner, Imogen Poots, and uh, Idris Elba, So as well as Rose Byrne, who is always a star in my heart. Robert Carlyle. And Robert Carlyle, of course. Robert Carlyle. Actually, Robert Carlyle was originally to play Major West. Ooh. But he couldn't, so he went to um, Christopher Eccleston. You know, I don't love it when filmmakers get so married to their cast that they just start recycling the same players in different roles. That's fair. Like Quentin Tarantinoism. Yeah. Like, imagine 28 Days Later with Robert Carlyle and Ewan McGregor, and I'd be like, I'd be distracted by the train, train spotting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's such a bleak film, and I kind of regretted watching it because it just was like, oh, it's too bleak and I love 28 Days Later which has this kind of vague hopeful ending. However, as of 2019, Danny Boyle was still talking about the sequel 28 Months Later. So he said it was still within the realm of possibilities. It was potentially still happening. So, I mean, now we're, what, three years later? and More than 28 months. Yeah. I'm hopeful that that film will happen. I would love to see what Danny Boyle and maybe even Alex Garland, if he can come back, would have to say about society now that no kidding. we are living through a pandemic. We have had the rise of fascism within the West. Yeah. Like, that story I, you told, it came true. Tell us more. Yeah. Help. help. Yeah. Predict more future. Be, Tell us what be to do. Cassandra. We need to see this <laughs> shit. Um, I mean, we save some of the heavy hitters for October. Yes. Because it's spooky season. This is when we feel in our power. And uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. This is there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yes. I'm in my feelings about this episode. It's just great to talk about a great film. Like, just to celebrate a film that's worth revisiting, that just seems to get better and better with age. And, you know, I know a lot of our listeners have seen these films and will maybe rewatch them in advance of an episode or watch them just to be able to keep up with an episode. So this is the kind of episode that I'm like, yes, let's watch this. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff we want to engage in right now. Like uh -huh. lean into the heavy shit, even when we want to lean away. That's exactly right. 
And so for next episode, I mean, we took it even closer to our listeners by offering our patrons a poll. And we have done this, what, three times before? Uh, I think a little more, but we like to throw it a few times a year to our patrons. Like, we've got an Excel list of all the films we want to tackle, and we add to it constantly, like themes, topics, individual films. And so we find polls are a really good way to kind of test the waters with everyone, see what you're all interested in, and also let you pick what we do in the next episode. And every single time I am surprised. Yes. This one maybe not as much as the last two. No, but this one turned into a fucking nail biter. It was it was neck and neck and there were people in my Discord being like, Why'd you vote for that? I want this. And I was like, no fighting kids. It's a democracy. <laughs> vote. Voting is power. This is what we have learned from Brexit. This is what we have learned from everything. That's right. And it's not to say we won't tackle one of the other films on that list eventually. I I think, if anything, it gave us a really good indication of what films are of interest. Yeah? You have a good indication of that? I think so. But in any event, if you would like to be a patron, that is, of course, always linked in our show notes. And um, everyone in our patronage gets to vote. Uh, So all that being said... Our November episode, oh boy, Uh, we are talking about the new French extremity film, Il, or Them, from 2006, and The Strangers from 2008, and let me just say, I will always vote for Scott Speedman. Of course you will. What was in second? Just for interest of everyone involved, Eel and The Strangers won with 26%. Second was Carnival of Souls from 1962 with 24%. Head from 1977 came in with 23%. Near Dark from 1987 came in with 20%. And Black Sunday came in with 6%. Hmm. The closest poll yet of all of our episode polls, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. So So you have spoken, and we will respond. Our next episode will be on eels and... um, Strangers. Ooh, so fucking We're going to enter your homes. We're going to take shit. And uh, it's going to be scary. I'm going to marry Scott Speedman. That's just how it's going to go. But we also have two other major things happening. And that is Class of 2022 merch is on sale. Mm-hmm. Designed uh, by Laura Hockstad. It is gorgeous. And uh, we went with a printer. You can choose what format you want, what color you want, what size you want, all what that. you want it on. Yeah. Um, and we've already seen some people get it um, and post about it. Please tag us because I it's fucking so love great seeing to that. See. It's the it's best. just wonderful. And then last but not least, we are old. So we have been doing this show for almost 10 years. And have you ever wanted to come to Toronto? If you need an excuse to visit Toronto, Ontario in the winter. In December, <laughs> the sexiest time to visit Toronto. Um, we're doing our live show, our 10-year anniversary show, December 7th at the Garrison here in Toronto. It's going to be really, really fun. Uh, we're already coming up with some stuff for audience participation and stuff. It's going to be a party. Things we're going to do. It's going to be a party. I'm going to be drunk. Yeah. And tickets are pay what you can. Every single dollar penny we make is going to go to Sistering Toronto. Wonderful cause. You know, whatever you can chip in is going to go to support something really, really good. Um, The information for Class of 2022 merch and our live show are going to be in the show notes. Please, please, please check them out. And um, hopefully we see some of you on December 7th. Yes. Tickets are going fast. 
capacity is limited, so please don't wait. I would hate for anyone to be like, yeah, I'll go up to Toronto and I'll just go up to... You need to book tickets. It's pay what you can, so it's going to fill up quick. And the class of 2022 merch is only available for the rest of 2022, so don't sleep, guys. Yeah. Don't sleep on it. Also, apparently, my parents are going to come to our live show. Oh, my God. So if you have any issues with me, you can take it up with them. Are you going to swear in front of them and burp and, like, make... Yeah, I feel like I should set them up with their own table. (laughs) (laughs) And you could just go like speak to Peter and Diana. (laughs) Andrea's like, I burst in line. (laughs) I'll bring my parents and they'll be like, faculty of what? Where's the steak? We're hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Again, please check out the merch. Please check out uh, the live show if you're able to attend. I think it's going to be really fun. And secure your house because next month we are talking about home invasion. But until the next time you wake up naked, alone, and afraid in a hospital, office hours are closed. 